Welcome to another episode of Inside Infrastructure, an ongoing series providing an inside look at the decisions and decision makers responsible for Australia's city-shaping infrastructure initiatives. The series is co-hosted by Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, and me, Ilya Zak, from series sponsor PwC Australia. Adrian, how's it going? Yeah, I'm well. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So what have we got on for today? Well, today we're discussing all things Uber, as we're lucky enough to be joined by the GM of Uber in Australia and New Zealand, Susan Anderson. Ride sharing has become so pervasive that it's hard to remember what it was like before you could just tap a button and get a ride. Ilya and I spoke to Susan not too long ago about her role at Uber and her take on the evolving role of ride sharing in the broader transport sector. So here it is, Susan Anderson on Inside Infrastructure. Uh, so Susan Anderson, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Um, obviously you're the MD of Uber in Australia, but you've had quite an interesting career background and, and pathway that's led you to here. Could you maybe talk us through that pathway? Yeah, hi, thank you so much for having me today. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, before I came to Australia, I was working uh, for Amazon in the UK. Um, and actually, this is the second time I have lived in Australia. Um, um, I'll tell you, I'll take you all the way back and tell you about my career history and like my adventures down under, um, which as a Brit, I think is uh, part of our part of the law that you have to come down under at some point. But um, I, I graduated from Oxford, uh, studied economics and management at New College. Um, I then joined a company called Capital One, which was a is a financial a consumer finance company, um, but was a startup at the point at which I joined it. I, so that's like credit cards and car loans. Absolutely, and- it was credit cards. And the thing that appealed to me when I joined was it was a company that was trying to disrupt the industry to provide better customer experience using a data-driven approach. Um, For me as a graduate, that appealed to me and actually I found that theme has gone through my career. Uh, I was at Capital One for a few years um, and actually traveled to Australia um, just backpacking um, and at that point joined Bain um, in Melbourne and worked uh, strategy consulting. I was here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my husband was working at that point on the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Um, so we were in Melbourne for a couple of years, um, went back to London, still with Bain, uh, and um, left Bain to go and join Amazon. I was appealed to me to do something new. Um, at that point, I'd had two kids, and so I spent time running the baby category, um, spending time thinking about what is it that new mothers need at that time. And uh, 5 a.m. blackout blinds is um, <laughs> is one of the things. Um, I went on to launch a product called Prime Now, which is one hour retail delivery. Um, and then my husband got a call. Um, this did, was in the US? This was in the UK, okay. in London. Um, and my husband had been doing London Olympics and he'd done the London Rugby World Cup. And he got a call from the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games that said, we come over, come down under, um, spend a couple of years at the beach. We thought that sounded like a great idea. Um, <laughs> so moved over with uh, the whole family and um, I joined Uber at that point to launch Uber Eats across Australia and New Zealand. What do you uh, say? So I think you touched on it briefly, but what, what would you say is the common theme through, through those, those uh, various roles? I always reflect that whilst I've spent quite a lot of time in tech, I'm not a techie. In fact, what I uh, look for in roles is an ability to really get in the mind of customers, think about what is the problem or the opportunity that you're trying to solve for them, and then to be creative about how to do that in in 
in a way that's empowered by technology uh, with smarter people than me actually making that happen. Um, so I think that's, that's what appeals to me and that's what I look for um, when I'm looking at opportunities. Um, sorry, um, the, the Lyft CEO said recently that he still drives once a year to, you know, be on the tools. Might have been lying, but, but uh, it is his claim. <laughs> Would you do that? Uh, I spend a lot of time in cars uh, with driver partners and I spend a lot of time in what we call our green light hubs, which is our customer service centres that we have in each of our large capital cities across Australia, talking to driver partners, understanding what is um, easy and and less easy for them in order to, to tackle that. Um, Right now, I spend less time actually driving the car. More than anything, my car would not get a five-star rating. So I wouldn't want to put anybody through that. Speaking of, uh, of ratings, what's your Uber rating? 4.86. It actually, I dropped a bit of a rating. I was at <laughs> 4.87 up to a couple of weeks ago, but I've been traveling internationally and on my phone a lot, doing emails and not necessarily where I should be when I was being picked up. Can so. you look up who gave you a four or a three or a two or whatever it is? I would never do that. I just have to be a better rider. <laughs> what do you got, Adrian? Oh, 4.79. I think oh, it's I, not bad. I think yeah. I'm up to 4.9. Mine was really 4.9. You are a look, very good person. Yeah. I'm very talkative. <laughs> yeah, it's a good and a bad. Which sometimes yeah. gets me a low my, rating. My rating was really high. <laughs> and then we, we were in Indonesia and we had the kids with us. And just it dropped dramatically. Oh yeah, blame the kids. Yeah, <laughs> sticking it on the kids. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's different uh, different countries uh, use the ratings in a different way. For instance, in Japan, three star is great ride exactly as you thought it should be. Um, to get a five star is exceptionally difficult. So it just adjusts what it what it looks like across the world. It is interesting though because it's uh, everyone's got a rating. It's not like a, a, a feedback score on eBay or something, which is just about the transaction. You're effect, it's effectively everyone's got a rating as a human being. <laughs> it's their, it's their <laughs> Uber rating. So you're just saying you're a better person. <laughs> yeah, I'm 0. 0.04 better yeah. than, than, yeah. Uh, than both of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, fair enough. I guess we just have to accept it, Susan, and, and move on. <laughs> I don't even know where to go for it. This is a cul-de-sac. I don't know if he is a better person. I don't know what the... Let's go to uh, to Uber today because you you've made your way up through from I think um, from Uber Eats you mentioned and you made your way up to be to start as GM of Uber in Australia, Australia New Zealand is that right? And uh, that that was quite recent. But just recently, when uh, your global CEO was here, he mentioned that if all the jurisdictions were like Australia, he'd be taking a whole lot more vacations. Um, I must have felt. Uh, pretty good, I guess, when he said that. But what, what do you think it was that he was referring to? I mean, it's pretty nice when your CEO is, uh, I believe he also said that the team in Australia is is one of the best. And so that's really nice to hear. And I would agree that I think the, the team that work here um, very hard on trying to provide a fantastic customer experience um, are second to none. Full full disclosure, uh, Susan is currently looking at a member of her team as she because <laughs> she's sitting in the room. But we, <laughs> I'm sure it would have happened regardless. I'm sure it would have. <laughs> Look, I think um, Australians embrace technology and we've seen this across both Uber and Uber Eats. I mean, if we think back to when Uber first launched in Australia, but before my time, um, launched with the black product, um, but when the peer-to-peer product came along, um, people just loved the uh, the experience, how convenient it was, no more kind of having to, you know, 
persuade somebody to take you to a destination. You could get a car in a matter of minutes, go to where you wanted it to be. It was affordable and it's changed how people get around. If you talk to teenagers now or people in their early 20s, I think they wouldn't remember what a pre-Uber time was. Um, I remember it. I remember trying to get home at night when I was a teenager, when I used to go out late. Um, and it was hard. You used to have to plan it in advance and, and it really changed the world. Um, it's the ultimate measure of success these days for a startup is that Uber, well, it's not a startup anymore, but Uber's a verb now. Absolutely. I mean, I remember my first ever Uber trip was actually in London and I was with uh, my two kids. They're pretty young and we were trying to get home from a fireworks celebration. There was crowds everywhere, queues for buses. And I was just getting that feeling that parents get where you know your children are about to melt down and you need to get them home. My sister-in-law said, let's get an Uber. And I was like, what? I don't know what that is. And she hit a button and four minutes later, there was a Prius there with a very friendly man who took us home and the kids got in the bus and went to bed. And I remember thinking this has changed my life. Um, and it did, it changed how I moved around London. And so um, I think what we found here in Australia is that customers have really embraced Uber. They they demand high customer service in this country. And I think Uber has worked hard to do that. Um, and we've also seen a similar thing within the Uber Eats business, which is it's one of the most um, successful in our global network here in Australia because of the quality of the food, quality of restaurants, as well as the fact that people really embrace this technology. And then factored onto that, there is a lot of demand for people to have this flexible way of earning in Australia. It's something that's extremely popular. We have um, over 60,000 driver partners on the Uber Rides platform on a regular basis who choose every day whether they're going to use this. And um, the feedback we get from them is, is, is high things that we can always improve on. Um, but I think that's what he's referencing is the fact that both the driver partners as well as the riders um, just thoroughly embrace the product. And it means that we can innovate and um, try new things here that we can export. So to what extent do you think that the nature of the incumbent taxi industry was a contributor to the success of Uber in Australia? I think that customers were um, excited about having alternatives, in particular being able to get to the destination, no matter whether that's a short trip or a longer trip. Um, and um, I think consistent feedback I hear is that driver partners are really friendly. People have a good experience in them, talking to them and sharing stories. Um, I think that's something that resonates uh, with Australian customers. Is it the same in all the jurisdictions? Are you equally... Uh successful in all the jurisdictions in Australia or is there one that stands out? We're present in over 37 towns and cities now in Australia. Actually, part of that is because we've been asked to launch in some of the smaller mm -hmm. places. There was a lot of demand for Uber to come and so we listened to that and and responded. Um, we we find that we're we're equally successful across most of the most of the cities. It's just different demographics around when the trips happen. So there's a lot of business trips in Sydney and Melbourne, as you'd expect. Airport trips are quite a lot of the the um, traffic across some of the bigger cities. And then in some of the smaller places, it's much more around um, trying to get people home so that they don't need to uh, drink or drive or have a designated driver. Is there an ideal density that, that Uber is most successful in? Or is there a minimum or a maximum? How do you decide which new town to go into? We're always trying to balance off the rider demand. So how many people want to take the service versus what is the earnings expectations that a driver partner can, can expect? Um, it is 
pretty open access to the platform. So if you want to earn, you need to complete a background check. You need to make sure you've got insurance documents um, and meet the local regulations. And we're fully regulated across all of Australia now. But if you meet that, then you are able to access the platform to earn. So we are always trying to balance. Is there enough demand in order for that to be a good use of a driver partner's time and try to educate um, driver partners about what they might expect? But statistically, what have you found? Which which size of city or, or, or jurisdiction works works well or which what kind of town is too small for, for Uber to, to go into? Um, Adelaide. No, Adelaide, we have a great business in Adelaide. Um, yeah, it's, it's genuinely hard for me to pull out some the, the any that don't work i think i think you see some places such as you know the surf coast it's very seasonal in summer that will be a lot busier than it is during during winter time but at peak at christmas time everywhere's busy because people are using this as a way to avoid right. drink driving and so that they can go out and, and not have to take their cars um so it's just uh it's just the seasonal patterns that look different uh, based on the type of city or town okay at its core uber is a dispatch platform in effect and um linking drivers to jobs <coughs> and, mm -hmm. and it's so it's a logistics type service but the only area of logistics that that beyond moving people has been uber eats um, Ilya and I were, were talking before, and we were kind of interested, why not other parts of the freight task? Yeah, um, well, we, we're still, as a business, pretty new. And so um, Uber Eats launched uh, in 2016. So that is actually only just a three-year-old business. Um, and when you think about the scale of growth and how that is now, actually the brand awareness on Uber Eats in Australia is the same as McDonald's, which is extraordinary in that small amount of time. Convenient um, that you've got McDonald's on Uber I Eats. I mean, yes, it is convenient <laughs> when you need Friday night McFlurries. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, we are always looking around are there other opportunities um, that we can use the network for. Um, we have a strong capability of being able to help people access earnings opportunities and leads for work. Um, and so we think a lot about how we can use that um, as well as a, uh, a large network of customers. Um, and in the US and Europe, we have a freight business, which is, uh, that's an early stage business. We're looking at um, how we can use that technology in order to be able to help shippers connect with uh, drivers in order to, to uh, reduce inefficiency in that network. So, I mean, freight is a new business when we're, we're um, understanding how our technology can be used to help improve the efficiency of drivers and connect them with um, shipping loads and also help people fill up shipping loads so that it's more efficient. Um, so I've used Uber as a courier when mm -hmm. I forgot a laptop. Ah, did <laughs> you send a driver? Yeah, so I called yeah. an Uber, yeah. gave him the laptop yeah. and shipped it to my yeah. wife. Yeah. I can't remember if she forgotten the laptop or not. Either way, I moved it. I've used Uber. I invented Uber Korea. Well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're not going to pay you any royalties. But, um, you know, I think uh, I think that's actually a use case that we hear about quite a lot, that people do that. Um, we've experimented and we will continue to experiment around understanding how the platform can be used. But we're pretty... Um, we're pretty happy with how effective the launch of Uber Eats has been and we're trying to balance around uh, which of the pieces we're experimenting and where and kind of running the existing businesses. I guess the question is, isn't so much when is it coming, just what do you think are the, the, the differences that make Uber Eats um, a much more readily available opportunity for Uber than 
you know, any of the other logistics options. Because logistics is a very, very, um, in a lot, it's an enormous sector. It's uh, talked about all the time. What are the more difficult, very highly fragmented, what are the more difficult things in that sector that have prevented it from coming online as early as Uber Eats? I mean, one of the things that Uber, our core technology at the moment is around on demand. You hit a button and somebody will come and pick you up Mm -hmm. then. Not in two hours time, not in an hour's time, then at that point. And same with Uber Eats, it's very on demand. It is, I want food and I need it in the next 20 minutes. And that's the Uber skill set that mm. we bring. What we are, um, what we have less of at the moment is scheduled mm-hmm. logistics, which is place an order and we will deliver it at six o'clock tonight or four o'clock this afternoon or in three hours time. Um, That's not to say we wouldn't innovate into that space, but the core technology behind the rides business is on demand, hit a button, get it now. That is extremely relevant for for hot food, getting food delivered when you want it. It is less relevant and less commercially viable for something where you don't need it right then and there. If you're happy to get it same day delivery or next day delivery, um, then that is a different model. Just to go down the rabbit hole, I've noticed that uh, a lot of the advertising now I see at airports is the the kind of live Mm -hmm. pickup time. Mm -hmm. So is that people's expectations shifting as they're getting used to seeing a car? approaching them on a map what's driving that focus on time yeah they they absolutely expectations absolutely have changed from when we launched i think people were like excited to see nine minutes they were like oh my god this is incredible as opposed and now i think if i see nine minutes i'm like wow i call my team i'm like what is going on i want it in three but i think that is kind of core of what uber brings to australians is the fact that our network is extremely reliable and there are times peak times morning commute can be um uh, slightly slower but typically you can get a ride across Sydney in under four minutes and I think that is hard to do and um, something that uh, we understand that people care about a lot. Uber has internationally gone through um, some pretty well publicized cultural challenges. There was the earlier uh, incarnation of Uber I guess. Um, It was the move fast and break things approach and there's a lot of commentators that suggest it was really the only way to get Uber to where it was uh, a few years ago. Um, these days, Uber is a lot more collaborative with government, working uh, to evolve regulations hand in hand with government and ensuring that Uber kind of fits into the transport system, doesn't it? Less, less of a combative approach. Do you think that has any uh, consequence for how fast Uber can innovate and deliver, new, deliver these new services that, that Uber may have been at the forefront of before? If I if I think back to kind of when Uber launched, I think even from the get go, we always wanted to be regulated. Um, it was a new product and a new service, um, and that did require regulators to think about things differently in a different way. Um, and but the intent and the conversation was always there, and um, it's it's been there is an aspect of disruption comes with change and change can um, can be hard. Um, and so I think that was needed, um, though we did learn lessons along the way around the right way to do that. You know, if I think about where we are now, um, you could 
we know that the right way to operate, given that we are a um, you know, $70 billion valued public company, there are ways of operating, um, which is working close collaboration with our government and our partners and the communities in which we operate. So if I take something like Uber Elevate, for instance, where we are trying to innovate into a brand new space of- Sorry, Uber Elevate? Uber Elevate is um, aerial uh, flying cars. It's Uber Air, it seems to be called in the media. Uber, we call it Uber Air. It's the team internally is Uber Elevate. Oh, okay. But if you take that, for instance, that is a new innovation. It is really forward thinking. But the only way we're successful to get that live is with very close collaboration with regulators, government ag agencies from the get-go. Mm -hmm. So actually, I'm not sure this does slow us down. Okay. I think this will enable us to launch things in the way that we know they need to be launched. I guess the example that comes to mind is uh, the shared e-scooters, which have you know mm -hmm. come out of nowhere. Absolutely, and, and suddenly have you tried them? I have. I did what did you think? Week. I love them. I actually uh not super legally bought one for my partner to use in sydney we're you waiting we're for it to be legalized right? yeah. we'll see we might be able to cut that part <laughs> yeah out. he controls the editing <laughs> and you guys have i think bought into that space with jump in the us and maybe even a chunk of lime if i've read correctly and maybe previously uber would have been their first thing do you think that is that an example of that or or is it is it uh is it just not one one company can't do everything all the time we we bought jump a couple of years ago um we're very excited about the micro mobility space um and we are an investor in lime as well and we recently actually launched uh jump in wellington um we won a tender there with the government in order to um operate in that space I think actually, if we take the micro mobility space, um, safety is one of our number one priorities across our entire platform, um, rides, eats, as well as micro mobilities. And there's work to do in this space. Um, we've been innovating and doing a lot of work on actually the the jump hardware, the actual scooters and the bikes in order to make sure that they are the safest that you can get. They are not the type that you bought for your wife. <laughs> they are substantially more evolved and safer battery um, change, uh, safer stability of where the battery sits on the vehicle to make sure that accidents are less likely to happen. So I think this is a conscious choice on our behalf that we want to make sure that the product that we put to market is the safest that it can be. We believe we are on that path. Um, and so that is, that's choice we're making about when and where to invest, but also just to make sure we're really clear about what the business model of this looks like and how it plays into the uh, transport network. But it's exciting. I think scooters are, uh, we're excited to bring them to more cities. So uh, another part of the, uh, another part of the cultural shift at Uber is, is uh, a, a big focus on gender equality. Um, I think the number one and two ranked staff in, in the Australia, New Zealand jurisdiction are women now as well. Probably, uh, coincidence or not how can you talk us through how that change has has uh, been has manifested itself in the organization yeah um I joined Uber in November 2016, uh, which was just a matter of weeks before um, there was a blog released in the US by a former employee in the tech team talking about some of her experiences. Um, the change that that caused in the business almost overnight in response to that was extraordinary to see. Um, a An entire 
top to bottom review of how Uber was operating. And I think that came from both the leadership and the employees saying this is not a company that um, that some people recognize, but also it wasn't what we wanted to be in. And I actually- Because that's actually quite a pervasive problem in Silicon Valley, isn't it? It's not just unique to Uber. I mean, I mean, gender inequality in senior leadership is is absolutely not an Uber issue. That is a an issue that I have since I started work. Um, I don't think we've made progress as society. So, you know, this is this is definitely not an Uber, an Uber issue. Um, what I saw, though, was genuine commitment to change. And there has been a lot of change through 2017 from our kind of new CEO joining, um, as well as everything from recruitment processes, performance management processes, promotions, uh, all of these aspects um, have changed and in a really fast amount of time. And so I think there is a reflection within the company that says that was we will look back on that episode in our history as one that was very difficult, um, but actually it meant that the company we have today is set up to um, to be better than it potentially would have been had that not happened. And I don't believe that Uber is the only company in Silicon Valley or actually globally that would have similar type issues. I actually think the degree of change that Uber put itself through was quite extraordinary. And, and like you say, kind of when I read that blog and there was a lot of conversation internally within the Australian business, I did not recognize the things that were talked about. That is not me saying they didn't happen. I think um, that experience that was described um, is not something that anybody should have to have to live through. But when I think about the Australian culture, um, it's one of the most um, engaged and talented teams that I've ever had the privilege to work with. Um, and like you say, kind of five out of our eight um, leadership team members in Australia are female. So we actually have a gender diversity issue the other way. We're <laughs> like, we need males in our shortlists for any senior roles. Um, <laughs> I'm available. <laughs> you not? I mean, I'm this not. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my work is, <laughs> I mean, is great. great. Cut that, cut that. <laughs> um, on a, a different... Um, a, a separate note on Dendover. So I'm intrigued by the, the Uber app is gender neutral. Right? For drivers and users, it doesn't, you know, I don't even know if you record people's gender on it. Are there interesting things that come up in the way different users from different backgrounds of any sort, gender or other, that, that use Do you the mean app? the drivers Does, or the, or the Well, drivers and users. I'm just interested by the different use cases and particularly on the driver front, the, the um, I think my experience has been there's more male drivers than, than female drivers. Do they engage with the app differently, different times, different use cases? Different outcomes as well as far as reviews or, or tips or whatever it is. We do, the majority of our driver partners on the platform are male at the moment. Um, and we do see some differences around when people will drive, um, often actually around childcare. So one of the things that our driver partners talk to us about, actually both female and male, is that the ability to choose when that you drive allows them to be able to coordinate that with partners so that there is no need to pay for childcare. Now, actually, for some people being on a on a in a job where you are rostered on and have to work certain shifts can make mean that if you have to pay childcare, 
you could lose money by actually having to do that piece of work. Being able to earn using the Uber app at the time when you choose means that actually you get to bring home a lot more of that of, of that money um, in order for, for the for the household. So we kind of see those differences. Um, I think we have a lot of focus on trying to make sure that the app is something that people can access in the way that they want to. Um, and you know, safety is a top concern for all of our driver partners. Um, and so we're can always working to try and make sure it is something that people can um, access in a way that they feel more comfortable. Uh, we tend to get fewer females driving very late at night um, for kind of because um, of safety concerns, which I think we can understand. It's not an Uber issue; that's a societal issue around kind of um, around uh, female safety. So, if there is an out- a different outcome as far as revenue earned, for example, it might be a reflection of the fact that they that sometimes women aren't able to drive at what might be the most lucrative time of day. Uh, yes, I think that would be accurate. The, um, we see fewer women driving at the peak hours, which would be a weekend night, mm. late at night, um, um, than, than you do male. And how is there, I mean, it might be impossible, but is there is there some way that you can, that Uber is thinking of to address that challenge? We've been investing heavily in safety and there's a number of features that we've launched um, over the last uh, 12 months and we're continuing to work in this space. So for instance, um, uh, last year, we introduced rider quality ratings. Um, we talked earlier about our rider ratings, but you know, if you are a rider who is not treating driver partners with respect, then you will lose access to the Uber platform. If we get consistent feedback from driver partners that the rider is not behaving in the right way, then then we will take them off the platform. Um, this is for driver partners in order to be able to drive riders, and if they don't like those riders, then um, we're going to listen to that feedback. Sure. Uh, we also have um, a lot of other features such as uh, we introduced a safety toolkit, um, which has a emergency SOS button, which will go d- directly through to law enforcement. Um, we introduced a feature called track your ride, which both drivers and riders can use so people can track uh, live where somebody is using GPS. When my we- laptop's going. Exactly. You can track your laptop. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I use it with my kids sometimes with the hope that maybe they'll meet me at the door. Uh, often they're just watching TV, but, you know, we can dream. Um, uh, um, and so we've, we continue working in the space and also just using technology behind the scenes so we can use um data and uh, in order to identify um, individuals who look like they're not behaving in a safe manner in order to take decisions about whether we give them access. There's a there's a related uh, a related development recently in Australia, an industrial relations development with the decision that came from the Fair Work Commission, where they determined that um, they determined that Uber driver partners are not uh, traditional employees. And um, can you talk us through what that decision means to Uber and what it would have meant if it had gone the other way? We talk to our driver partners frequently about what's important for them. And the number one reason people talk about using Uber is the flexibility. The ability to be able to choose when and where um, you earn. Um, There's very few jobs that allow that. Um, And in fact, there was a study done um, uh, by a research company called Alpha Beta that looked into this and said, actually across Australia, um, the ability to access flexible work, which enables somebody to run their own business or study, or um, or as we talked about earlier, be able to navigate earning around childcare or any number of things that people have in their life, that ability to have flexible earnings opportunity is increasingly important in Australia. 
And actually, those opportunities are not, there's not very many of them. And so we heard from driver partners, um, over 80% say that the flexibility to earn when and where is what's important to them. Um, the vast majority of driver partners on the platform do it around another job or as a retiree or as a student. Um, and so had that come out that they were required to be an employee, which would be associated with shifts and kind of confirmed times of working, the vast majority would not be able to earn in that way anymore. So is our is our industrial relations system, um, are there changes that need to be made in order for you to operate as flexibly as you'd like? Because I've, I've heard earlier that there may be some benefits that you want to give to drivers, maybe some training, maybe some kind of um, personal development uh, and 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 the risk is that they might be treated as an might be classified as an employee after that. Do we, are there changes that we need in our IR laws to accommodate the gig economy? Our view is that um, flexibility in earning is an important aspect that people want, and that is why over 60,000 people choose every day to access the Uber app. Because remember, there's no obligation. If they do not have a good experience, then they can stop tomorrow. So I think actually Uber more than anyone else actually needs to make sure that every day we earn that trust and people choose to use the app. Um, but we don't think that should come at the sacrifice of um, security. So we introduced uh, last year a driver partner insurance, which means that if there is an incident while they're using the app, they are protected um, and there is, there is insurance there. We would like to go further. For instance, in France, we have introduced uh, maternity leave and paternity leave um, and also some kind of holiday pay for people using the Uber app through insurance products. We can't introduce that in Australia because of the IR laws today. So right. we are open to the conversation that a number of um, state governments and federal governments is exploring around what a third way will, would look like. Right. I want to ask a question about the broader transport network. So there's been some studies in um, overseas locations around the contribution that Uber makes to congestion um, the, and, and the the evidence appears to be in some of those studies that Uber's circulating for jobs actually add to congestion. Um, wh what are your thoughts on that? And is, is Uber making congestion worse or better? In, in Australia, still 80% of trips are made by private cars. Um, and that is the main cause of congestion, is people getting in their own car every day, driving into cities um, um, and, and parking and using precious real estate um, for car parks. Um, so, you know, we have introduced a number of products such as Uber Pool, which is our shared rides product where you can get in a car. If you're going in a similar direction to other people, you can share that together. Um, we think this technology, while still new, is a really great way for us to tackle congestion. But also thinking about how a product such as Uber can help connect people into the public transport network. So we don't believe that, that Uber on its own is a solution to congestion. However, if there's a way for us to connect people um, who I believe um, the vast majority, again, of people in Sydney and Melbourne um, don't live within 400 metres of a transport um, hub. If we can find a way to connect people to first last mile of public transport, use public transport in a way that is affordable and convenient through the day, then we believe they'll leave their cars at home. And in that way, we can end up with less congestion. So is that the is that the, the key variable then? Because, so you know, out, let's taking Sydney as an example, if you're out in a, in a poorly serviced area, a public transport serviced area, then Uber is is helping relieve is helping taking cars off the road. But maybe here in the CBD, it might be 
taking people out of public transport? Is that a risk that you that that of the impact of Uber on a city? I mean, I think we see ourselves as a transportation platform. And so, for instance, with the introduction of scooters and bikes, which we are working on across cities, the idea is that short trips would be done by an e-scooter, an e-bike. And maybe over time, governments will start pedestrianizing city centers such that you don't need cars. And then if you think about the choices people make about their transport, if there is a great public transport network that you can access using a product such as Uber um, without needing a private car, that's when people will start making those choices about not having the second car or thinking about whether they need the car if they're living in the city centre areas. Can we dig into that a little bit? Because that's a, a you know, there's, there is a broader question with all of Uber's, you know, entrance with Jump and um, I think any other kind of transport option that Uber is, is going to be offering. Is Uber mode agnostic? Is Uber going to be just, you know, a, a substitutable word for transport rather than, Uber is particularly a rideshare app? We are looking to build out the transportation suite of options. For instance, um, in Denver, we have a transit option where when you open the Uber app, you can see when the latest train is going to go or buses or kind of connecting in and showing the information about public transport as well as being able to access then other modes of transport. From our perspective, we want people to come to the Uber app first see what the options are and then be able to make a choice that ideally helps people move around in a in a more effective way. So is that coming? Is, are we going to be able to open up the Uber app in anywhere in Australia? And, uh, you know, the fastest way to get a trip might be Uber then a train. Will Uber tell us that soon? I hope so. We're working on it. We've got a we've got a trial live with the New South Wales government up in Manly, which is a um, a partnership with the ferries in order to try and get more people onto the ferry in order to kind of um, again get the cars off the bridge. Um, and we've been using our pool product to try and encourage more people to use that, which has been pretty successful. So we're experimenting with governments. We're trying various things um, in order to see what works and what resonates with customers. But we're quite excited about what the future of that could mean. So on the, the congestion piece, one thing we know is that as things get cheaper, um, people tend to consume them mm-hmm. more. And um, we know the future of mobility is probably electric. Um, it might well be autonomous and all of those things will lead ultimately to a lower price of delivery, um, which will increase the use and there's a finite amount of road supply and therefore more congestion. Um, and Uber is, will be a contributor to that by bringing down the price. So do you have a view on things like more rationally pricing the road network so that the, 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 the way it's consumed is more efficient? Yeah, our, our view is that we're supportive of uh, road pricing in order to reflect the true costs of that. And if you, if you fast forward to 10, 15 years from now, at a point where autonomous technology is advanced enough that that is something pretty common, electric and battery technology is such that hopefully that is the vast majority of vehicles, it is not going to be good for our cities and our congestion if everybody owns their own individual electric autonomous car. We'll be in the same situation, it's just we'll be reading rather than steering when we're on the road. Um, what we really hope the future will be is that um, the appropriate costs are reflected, um, that encourages people by using technology such as Uber that can connect people with vehicles. Um, 
with bikes, with all different modes of transportation, that people begin shifting the mindset of transport being something you own to transport being something that you consume on a per use basis. Um, that would be the ideal because then that will begin to more accurately reflect. So the how, how proactive effect. is Uber in that in Australia? Because we, we it's uh, just recently, I guess, in New York, the congestion charge was announced there and Uber was actually at the forefront of campaigning for it. Is it, um, is it, are you as active here? Is it, can you see a, a, as clear a path to something like that in Australia or is it a, a fair while away? We spend quite a lot of time talking to transport ministers in all of the states across Australia, across a variety of things, you know, the, the, the across kind of existing rideshare regulations, new modalities such as e-scoots, e-bikes, and just what their future think thoughts are. Um, so we contribute our input to to transport ministers and give them our thoughts. And we hope we hope to work with them as they begin planning out what it looks like for each of the states. You're effectively already paying a distance based charge, I'm guessing, for your insurance and for every other part of the the, the cost of the of the fleet. Um, it wouldn't really be that much of a leap for for a company like Uber to also calculate a, a, a road user charge. Um, what do you think then? What is the path to to uh, some kind of rational road pricing mechanism here? What do you think is the first step? Because electric vehicles are often touted as, you know, the the fuel excess is going to disappear, and maybe that's going to be the burning platform. What do you think is the is the path to getting that pricing mechanism here? The follow up question for me is, um, so I think that. Electric and we have a different opinion on this, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think electric vehicles are the opportunity. If we're getting in at the thin end of the wedge and apply a road user charge to electric mm-hmm. vehicles, mm-hmm. Um, we'll be solving a long-term problem. But if we don't do it with electric vehicles, it strikes me that mobility platforms are another opportunity because it's a, um, it, you know, you, you can apply it with a changing technology with a new thing. And Ilya mentioned about having, you, know, you have the, all of the, mechanics of it are already there you're an entity mm. and the benefits think, are so discreet you, yeah. you can directly benefit in a way that maybe you know other individual users might not whereas uber will directly benefit by by a less congested jurisdiction i think it's important that you have alternatives in place before you move down the path and so at the point at which there are a legitimate set of transport alternatives from um things like rideshare, but as well as the public transport networks, maybe it's on-demand public transport, on-demand, you know, uh, small buses um, operating a route, as well as mobility scooters, e-scooters and e-bikes. If you have those alternatives, then I think you are more able to introduce things such as a road tax. Because I think we know that there's a number of households that, um, you know, if you were to introduce that and they do not have a cost-effective alternative means of transportation, that has a big impact on people's household budgets. Um, transportation remains one of the biggest costs that people have to deal with. So I think it's important that transport ministers and the government is looking at it in a way of providing the alternatives. They have to be cost-affordable. They have to be a legitimate alternative um, so that people are still able to get to work and and actually people don't get priced out of working in city centres would be very important. It's an interesting segue because you are actively participating in some of the trials for on-demand public transit, not not ride-sharing. Can you talk us through what the experience has been uh, in this jurisdiction and also compared to others? Because I think companies like Via and Uber, I guess, in other jurisdictions are, are, are a fair few steps ahead of where we are in Australia on that particular mode. 
we're talking to a number of governments and bus companies around what this looks like. Um, and there's a few different options. Um, we're finding that when we look internationally, there's a number of trials that Uber is doing around uh, minibuses and actually um, having these on demand that um, do run sort of a schedule, but with a way for you to kind of indicate that you want to be picked up on route and the buses will go around and collect that. And we're offering a safer solution than they have alternatives as well as a very cost effective way um, in some of the countries across uh, the Middle East, Africa and, and into some Eastern European countries. I think locally, what we're trying to understand is um, how do you use the technology such as pool, where actually being able to match people, um, being able to kind of have algorithms that can, uh, in almost real time, say, we're going to have people going in similar directions. How do you get them in the same vehicle um, is quite difficult. We have millions of miles worth of trips that have enabled us to be able to build technology around that. Um, but I think that provides really interesting alternatives um, and cost-effective alternatives in particularly some of the less dense areas. So if you think about bus routes and kind of traditional bus routes being used where there is uh, traditional paths of traffic and then being substituted with on-demand, um, maybe using the existing Uber network of driver partners and their existing sedans, as well as kind of then thinking about high capacity vehicles where demand lends itself. I think that is a more cost-effective way of operating so should, for governments. Should governments be contracting you for or, and other companies for this, or is this something that Uber should be leading in the way that rideshare is is completely independent of government, regulated but not contracted? Should does the 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 larger sort of those minibuses that you're describing? Do you need a contract for it to work, or will you be going down that path on your own? I think where it is commercially viable on a standalone basis, then that is something that Uber will innovate into and try. Um, but I think for some of the challenges that exist within Australian cities, for instance, is in less dense areas where actually um, without a government subsidy, it is unlikely to be commercially viable. However, we believe the degree of subsidy would be less using an existing network than it would be in governments trying to create that on their own. So we do think there is a partnership opportunity here and we're talking to a lot of governments about trying to understand what, what it is and how that could work. In a related question, so in the East Coast of Australia right now, there's a once in a generation investment in uh, infrastructure, particularly mass transit infrastructure. Um, do you think enough focus on the impact of ride sharing is being put into the way that infrastructure's planned? You know, if you think about a future where there's an, an Uber taking you to a train station, is there enough space for people to drop off and be picked up? Because this is 100-year infrastructure that's being put mm. in. Is it taking account of the future you're describing? I mean, I think there's still a lot of car parks being built around infrastructure. And so if you think about kind of the amount of real estate that goes into car parks at uh, train stations, um, it's it's a lot. And I think that still is the is the bias that that is there. Um, and It'd be great spots for an Uber Air launch pad. Right. Or even just more <laughs> affordable housing. You know, this is... Um, land particularly in the busy cities is um is at a premium and and when it's being used purely to put cars in for hours of a day it, it you wonder if it could be used to better purposes um and we're actually seeing you know some some governments around the world are actually requiring that new car parks have different specifications such that they can more easily be converted into accommodation so higher roof for instance so that there is less conversion cost if and when that time comes um but there's some technology, for instance, if we think about airports, that we have good technology where we can match 
airport drop-offs with pickups, but requiring them to be on the same level, on the same route is important. If they are at different heights, then that technology becomes redundant. And so we're working with our airport partners and with the new airport in Western Sydney, for instance, so that we can provide input around what technology exists that should be considered as these infrastructures get built um, so that they are built for the long term. So are they listening? Are you are you feeding into these uh, longer term I- infrastructure projects now? Yeah, we have really positive relationships with uh, with the major infrastructure um, airports in particular, and with all of the transport ministers and infrastructure um, with across Australia. We're helping to provide just the view of what transportation and technology might be, and we still don't know exactly what it will look like. But autonomous is probably a it's a technology that will work, and maybe it's a ten year horizon but that means that it's worth thinking about how do you create routes where autonomous vehicles can move um and and thinking about how they work alongside people driving cars is is interesting for people to consider but also then how do you think about within city centers things like e-scooters and e-bikes and a lot of the safety implications to do with those are to do with the fact there are cars and pedestrians and those vehicles in existing space but perhaps if we were planning from scratch, you would build something a bit different so that you could make better use of those. Was that an announcement date for when we're going to have autonomous vehicles here? Was 10 years from now <laughs> is, the, uh, is the planned launch date? Um, <laughs> it is. We are working on it. Um, the technology is um, is advanced, but there's still work to do. Um, but uh, I think it's it's that kind of time frame. Is it, it, it is a, 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 you know, gets a lot of attention, probably more attention than it deserves, given all the other work that Uber does. But the the autonomous vehicle project, I think it's in Phoenix that, that Uber's doing most of its autonomous vehicle work, gets a lot of attention. Um, and, it, you know, as you said, it will come, it will uh, be launched eventually. Um, does that mean that we need to, you know, in that time frame, maybe invest less in public transit? Or is it something that's going to fit into these major public transit investments? We think public transport still is going to remain one of the most cost-effective and environmentally friendly ways of moving people around en masse. Um, Again, as I talked about, what we want to avoid is everybody having their own autonomous vehicle that they use independently in order to travel around. That will cause our cities to just stand still. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the intent is absolutely not to take people off public transport networks and to ensure that cities still have that core of transport networks, but then to think about them as a hub and spoke model. How do you connect people to their nearest public transport node in a way that is cost effective so that they choose to use that rather than drive their own car? And then obviously the public transport that they get, the frequency of that, the reliability um, needs to be there in order for them to be something that they can choose to do from early morning until late at night. Um, I'm uh, sort of conscious of time, you've been very generous with your time today. We have um, one last question for, for you, which is, uh, what's your favourite type of infrastructure and why? <laughs> oh, I would have to say extremely tall buildings. And that is because I have a nine-year-old son who talks to me about extremely tall buildings <laughs> on a regular basis. Um, so his favourite thing is to, uh, he loves the Burj Khalifa. When I was in Taiwan recently, he made me go to the Taipei 101. And I think there's something fascinatingly ambitious about the fact we as humans create these extraordinarily beautiful, very tall creations just because we can. That is the first vertical infrastructure answer we've had to that question. Everybody else has gone linear. Yeah, that's courtesy of Noah Anderson. So... 
It's probably a, a segue for an Uber Air, 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 well, Uber Air launch. Susan, <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. It's thank been you a so great much. discussion. It's Thanks. been great. Thanks, Susan. Cheers. So that was our chat with Susan Anderson of Uber. Ilya, any thoughts? Yeah, look, obviously it was a fun discussion for all of us, but what I'm, I'm most encouraged by is that Susan uh, seems to represent a, a genuinely tech and innovation-driven approach to transport infrastructure in a way that uh, I, I, I don't know if any other companies have been able to add so successfully, whether that's because they have legacy businesses to protect or otherwise. Uh, with Uber, I, I feel like it genuinely changes the way we engage with transport in a way that few other um, transport or tech businesses have successfully managed to achieve. I was really struck by their willingness to try new things. It's certainly notable and I, I suspect that will increasingly make them a key part of the transport industry overall. So that's it for today. Thank you to Susan Anderson for coming in and being so generous with her time, Ilya for hosting with me, and PwC Australia for hosting us here at their offices in Barangaroo. As always, we strongly encourage you to subscribe on your Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify platforms, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Once you subscribe, you'll be notified about new episodes as they're published. We also really appreciate any feedback you may have. You can send that to us directly. You can send it via LinkedIn or maybe add a review on Apple Podcasts. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia. This episode was produced by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC's media agency. Research was conducted by Michael Player, Mitch Dudley and Linda Bergeson. Past episodes can be found on the Inside Infrastructure page at both Infrastructure Partnerships Australia and PwC, as well as on SoundCloud. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from.